Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Once again, I want to thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate every single one of you. Um, I see some of you have been going back and revisiting the whole counterculture series. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, Obviously, this week we're going to go into part two of our series on the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. As always, I would like, if you get the chance, uh, for you to rate us on the platform that you listen to us on. If it's a platform that you can give us five stars, please do. It helps us get onto those recommended lists, which really gives us a chance to um, move up and get more listeners. Um, if you want to stop by our Patreon page or our Venmo and throw us uh, a few dollars, that would be great. We can uh, take your support in any way you want to give it to us. Um, at the end of the day, I just really appreciate the fact that you guys are hanging in there with me and still listening. Um, as I've said before, I never really thought that I would ever make this many episodes of this show um, or that people all over the world would listen to me so I really really appreciate it and I just want to thank you guys so much so let's jump right in we're going to go into part two in this segment we're going to look into the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense struggles with COINTELPRO and the other issues they had as an organization as they went into the years that they were the most active So in July of 1969, the Black Panther Party organized the United Front Against Fascism Conference in Oakland, which was attended by around 5,000 people representing a number of different groups. In August of 67, the FBI instructed its program COINTELPRO, our counterintelligence program, to neutralize all black nationalist hate groups and other dissident groups. So to give you an idea, I've talked about COINTELPRO very, very briefly um, in uh, conjuncture with the other uh, 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 counterculture groups. COINTELPRO uh, looked into the weather underground. They infiltrated the weather underground. They tried to infiltrate the Brotherhood of Eternal Love because they were targeting the Brotherhood of Eternal Love because Richard Nixon believed that the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was actually run by Timothy Leary. It was not. Um, COINTELPRO uh, made it a point to infiltrate all student organizations. They decided that black organizations were the worst as they categorized them as hate groups. But what made the difference during the civil rights movement was the fact that in many instances, the organizations that they infiltrated were peaceful organizations and they would then assuage them to commit violent acts. So COINTELPRO was actually responsible for quite a lot of carnage that would not have happened had they not infiltrated many of these groups. So by 69, the Black Panthers and their allies had become the primary COINTELPRO targets. Singled out in 233 of the 295 authorized Black nationalist COINTELPRO actions. So think about this. The FBI had 295 authorized active investigations going on. 295 active 
investigations on 295 people of color. The goals of the program were to prevent unification of militant black nationalist groups and to weaken their leadership as well as to discredit them to reduce their support and growth. The initial targets included the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Revolutionary Action Movement, and the Nation of Islam, as well as the leaders such as Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, Maxwell Stanford, and Elijah Muhammad. Now, it became known at one point that Martin Luther King was actually presented with a blackmail letter sent by COINTELPRO stating that unless he committed suicide, they would make it known that he had had an affair. Those were the kind of tactics that they were going up against during the uh, civil rights movement. COINTELPRO attempted to create rivalries between black nationalist factions and to exploit existing ones. One such attempt was to intensify the degree of animosity between the Black Panthers and the Blackstone Rangers, a Chicago street gang. The FBI sent an anonymous letter to the Rangers gang leader claiming that the Panthers were threatening his life, a letter whose intent was to provoke preemptive violence against the Panther leadership. In Southern California, the FBI made similar efforts to exacerbate a gang war between the Black Panther Party and the Black Nationalist Group known as the U.S. Organization, allegedly sending a provocative letter to the organization to increase existing antagon antagonization. COINTELPRO also aimed to dismantle the Black Panther Party by targeting their social and community programs, most prominently their free breakfast program for children. The success of the free breakfast program served to shed a light on the government's failure to address child poverty and hunger pointing to the limits of the nation's war on poverty. As the party taught and provided for children more effectively than the government, the FBI denounced their efforts as a means of indoctrination. Police and federal agents regularly harassed and intimidated the program participants, supporters, and party workers, and sought to scare away donors and organizations that house programs like churches and community centers. Huey Newton had been convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for repeatedly stabbing another man, Odell Lee, with a steak knife in mid-64. He served six months in prison. By October 27, 1967, he was out celebrating his release from his probationary period. Just before dawn on October 28th, Newton and a friend were pulled over by Oakland police by Officer John Frey. Realizing who Newton was, Frey called for backup. After fellow officer Herbert Hines arrived, shots were fired, and all three were wounded. Hines testified that the shooting began after Newton was under arrest, and one witness testified that Newton shot Frey with Frey's own gun as they wrestled. No gun on either Frey nor Newton was found. Newton stated that Frey shot him first which made him lose consciousness during the incident. Frey was shot four times and died within the hour, while Hines was left in serious condition with three bullet wounds. Black Panther David Hillard took Newton to Oakland's Kaiser Hospital, where he was admitted with a bullet wound to the abdomen. 
Newton was soon handcuffed to his bed and arrested for Frey's killing. A doctor by the name of Thomas Finch and a nurse by the name of Corrine Leonard attended to Newton when he arrived at the hospital, and Finch stated that Newton was agitated when he asked for treatment, and so he was given a tranquilizer to calm him down. Newton was convicted in September of 68 of voluntary manslaughter for the killing of Frey and was sentenced to 2 to 15 years in prison. In May of 1970, the California Appellate Court reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial. After two trials ending in hung juries, the district attorney said he could not pursue a fourth trial and the Alameda County Superior Court dismissed all charges. In his autobiography, The Revolutionary Suicide, Newton wrote that Hines and Frey were opposite each other, shooting in each other's direction during the shootout. As Newton awaited his trial, the Free Huey campaign developed alliances with numerous students and anti-war activists, advancing an anti-imperialist political ideology that linked the oppression of anti-war protests to the oppression of blacks and the Vietnamese. The Free Huey campaign attracted black power organizations, new left groups, and other activist groups such as the Progressive Labor Party, Bob Akavian of the Community for New Politics, and the Red Guard. For example, the Black Panther Party collaborated with the Peace and Freedom Party, which sought to promote a strong anti-war and anti-race politics in opposition to the establishment Democratic Party. The Black Panther Party provided needed legitimacy to the Peace and Freedom Party's racial politics and in return received invaluable support for their Free Huey campaign. In 1968, the Southern California chapter was founded by Alprentice Bunchy Carter in Los Angeles. Carter was the leader of a Slauson Street gang, and many of the LA chapter's early recruits were Slaussons. Bobby Hutton was born April 21, 1950, in Jefferson County, Arkansas. At the age of three, he and his family moved to Oakland, California. After being harassed by racist vigilante groups associated with the Klan, in December 66, he became the first treasurer and recruit of the Black Panther Party at the age of just 16. He became the first member of the party to also be killed by the police. On April 6, 1968, two days after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and with riots raging across cities in the United States, a 17-year-old Hutton was traveling with Eldridge Cleaver and other Black Panther Party members in a car. The group confronted Oakland police officers, then fled to an apartment building where they engaged in a 90-minute gun battle with the police. The standoff ended with Cleaver wounded and Hutton voluntarily surrendering. According to Cleaver, although Hutton had stripped down to his underwear and had his hands raised in the air, Showing that he was unarmed, Oakland police shot him more than 12 times, killing him. Two police officers were also shot. Although at the time, the BPP claimed that the police had ambushed them, several party members later adamant admitted that Cleaver had led the Panther group on a deliberate ambush of the police officers, provoking the shootout. Seven other Panthers, including Chief of Staff David Hillard, were also arrested. Hutton's death became a rallying issue for Panther supporters. In 1968, 
the group shortens its name to the Black Panther Party and sought to focus directly on political actions. Members were encouraged to carry guns and to defend themselves against violence. An influx of college students joined the group, which had consisted mostly of Brothers of the Block. This created some tension. Some members were more interested in supporting their social programs, while others wanted to maintain their street mentality. By 1968, the party had expanded into many U.S. cities, including Atlanta, Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Newark, New Orleans, New York City, Omaha, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, Toledo, and D.C. Peak membership was near 5,000, and by 1969, their newspaper, under the editorial leadership of Eldridge Cleaver, had a circulation of 250,000. Panther slogans and iconography spread. At the 1968 Summer Olympics, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, two American medalists, gave the Black Power salute during the American National Anthem. The International Olympic Committee banned them from all future Olympic Games. Film star Jane Fonda publicly supported Huey Newton and the Black Panthers during the early 70s. She actually ended up informally adopting the daughter of two Black Panther members, Mary Luana Williams. Fonda and other Hollywood celebrities became involved in the Panthers' leftist programs. The Panthers attracted a wide variety of left-wing revolutionaries and political activists, including the writer Jean Jeanette former Ramparts Magazine editor David Horowitz, who later became a major critic of what he describes as the Panthers' criminality, and left-wing lawyer Charles R. Geary, who acted as counsel in many of the Panthers' legal battles. The Black Panther Party adopted a Serve the People program, which at first involved a free breakfast program for children. By the end of 1968, the Black Panther Party had established 38 chapters and branches, claiming more than 5,000 members. Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver left the country days before Cleaver was to turn himself in to serve the remainder of a 13-year sentence for a 1958 rape conviction. They settled in Algeria. By the end of the year, party membership peaked at around 2,000. Party members engaged in criminal activities such as extortion, stealing, violent discipline of Black Party members, and robberies. The leadership took one-third of the proceeds from the robberies, inspired by Mao Zedong's advice to revolutionaries in the Little Red Book, Newton called on Panthers to serve the people and make survival programs a priority within its branches. The most favorite of their survival programs, the Free Breakfast for Children program, initially was run out of the Oakland Church. The Free Breakfast for Children program was especially significant because it served as a space for educating youth about the current conditions within the black community and the actions that the party was willing to take to address those conditions. While children ate their meals, Members of the party taught them the liberation lessons consisting of party messages and black history. Through this program, the party was able to influence young minds and strengthen their ties to the community, as well as gain widespread support for their ideology. The breakfast program became so popular that the Panther Party claimed to have fed 20,000 children in the 68 to 69 school year. 
Other survival programs were free services such as clothing distribution, classes on politics and economics, medical clinics, lessons on self-defense and first aid, transportation to upstate prisons for family members of inmates, an emergency response ambulance program, drug and alcohol rehabs, and testing for sickle cell disease. The free medical clinics were very significant because it was a model of an idea of how the world might work with free medical care. 13 clinics were established across the country. These clinics were involved in community-based health care that had roots connected to the civil rights movement, which made it possible to establish the Medical Committee for Human Rights. Violent conflicts between a Panther chapter in LA and the U.S. organization, a black nationalist group, resulted in shootings and beatings and led to the murders of at least four Black Panther Party members. On January 17, 1969, Los Angeles Panther Captain Bunchy Carter and Deputy Minister John Huggins were killed in the Campbell Hall of the UCLA campus in a gun battle with the members of the U.S. organization. Another shootout between the two groups on March 17 led to further entries and the death of two more Panthers. Their very first liberation school was opened by the Richmond Black Panthers in July of 1969, with brunch served and snacks provided to students. Another school was opened in Mount Vernon, New York on July 17th of the subsequent year. These schools were informal in nature and more closely resembled after-school or summer programs. While these campuses were the first to open, their first full-time and longest-running liberation school was open in January 1971 in Oakland in response to the inequitable conditions in the Oakland Unified School District, which was ranked one of the lowest scoring districts in all of California. Named the Intercommunal Youth Institute, this school under the directorship to Brenda Bay and later Erica Huggins enrolled 28 students in the first year, the majority being children of Black Panther parents. This number grew by 50 by the 73 to 74 school year in order to provide full support for the Black Panther parents whose time is spent organizing, some of the students and faculty members live together year-round. The school itself was dissimilar to traditional schools in a variety of ways, including the fact that the students were separated by academic performance rather than age, and the students were often provided one-on-one -on -one support as faculty-student ratio was only 1 to 10. The, passen the Panthers' goal in opening the Liberation Schools, and specifically the Intercommunal Youth Institute, was to provide students with an education that wasn't being provided in the white schools, as public schools in districts employed a Eurocentric assimilationist curriculum, with no attention to Black history or Black culture. While students were provided with traditional courses such as English, Math, and Science, they were also exposed to activities focused on class structure and prevalence of institutionalized racism. The overall goal of the school was to instill a sense of revolutionary consciousness in the students. With a strong belief in experimental learning, students had the opportunity to participate in community service projects, as well as practice their writing skills by drafting letters to political prisoners associated with the Black Panther Party. Huggins is noted as saying, I think that the school's principles came from the socialist principles we tried to live by in the Black Panther Party, one of them being critical thinking, 
that children should learn not what to think, but how to think. The school was an expression of the collected wisdom of the people who envisioned it. And it was a living thing that changed every year. Funding for the Intercommunal Youth Institute was provided through a combination of Black Panther fundraising and community support. In May of 1969, three members of the New Haven chapter tortured and murdered Alex Rackley, a 19-year-old member of the New York chapter because they suspected that he was a police informant. Three party members, Warren Kimbrough, George Sams Jr., and Lonnie McLucas later admitted to taking part. Sams, who gave the order to shoot Rackley at the murder scene, turned the state's evidence and testified he had received the orders directly from Bobby Seale to carry out the execution. Party supporters responded that Sams was himself the informant and an agent provocateur employed by the FBI. The case resulted in the New Haven Black Panther trials of 1970. Kimbrough and Sams were convicted of the murder, but the trials of Seal and Erica Huggins ended with a hung jury, and the prosecution chose not to seek another trial. In Chicago, on December 4th in 1969, two Panthers were killed when the Chicago police raided the home of Panther leader Fred Hampton. The raid had been orchestrated by police in conjunction with the FBI. Hampton was shot and killed, as was Panther guard Mark Clark. A federal investigation reported that only one shot was fired by the Panthers. The police fired at least 80 shots. The only shot fired by the Panthers was from Mark Clark, who appeared to fire a single round determined to be the result of a reflexive death convulsion after he was struck in the chest by shots from the police at the beginning of the raid. Hampton was sleeping next to his pregnant fiance and was subsequently shot twice in the head at point blank range while unconscious. The coroner reports show that Hampton was drugged with a powerful barbiturate that night and would have been unable to be awoken by the sounds of the police raid. His body was then dragged to the hallway. He was 21 years old and was unarmed at the time of his death. Seven other Panthers sleeping at the house at the time of the raid were then beaten and seriously wounded when arrested under the charges of aggravated assault and attempted murder of officers involved in the raid. These charges would later be dropped. Former FBI agent Wesley Swearingen asserts the Bureau was guilty of a plot to murder the Panthers. Hampton had been slipped barbiturates, which left him unconscious by William O'Neill, who had been working as an FBI informant. Cook County State's Attorney Edward Hanneran his assistant and eight Chicago police officers were indicted by a federal grand jury over the raid, but the charges were later dismissed. Civil actions were taken up by Hampton's family, and they won $1.85 million from the city of Chicago in a wrongful death settlement. Activists from many countries around the globe supported the Panthers and their cause. In Scandinavian countries such as Norway and Finland, for example, Left-wing activists organized a tour for Bobby Seale and Masai Hewitt in 1969, 
At each destination along the way, the Panthers talked about their goals and the Free Huey campaign. Seal and Hewitt made a stop in Germany as well, gaining support for the Free Huey campaign. A group of Panthers traveled through Asia and were welcomed as guests of the government of North Vietnam, North Korea, and China. The group's first stop was North Korea, where Panthers were met with local officials and in order to discuss ways in which they could help fight against American imperialism. Eldridge Cleaver traveled to Pyongyang twice in 1969 and 1970, and following these trips, he made an effort to publicize the writings and works of North Korean leader Kim Il-sung in the United States. After leaving North Korea, the group traveled to North Vietnam with the same agenda, finding ways to put an end to American imperialism. Eldridge Cleaver was invited to speak to black GIs by the North Vietnamese government. He encouraged them to join the black liberation struggle by arguing that the United States government was only using them for their own purposes. Instead of risking their lives on the battlefield for a country that continued to oppress them, Cleaver believed that the black GIs should risk their lives in support of their own liberation. After leaving Vietnam, Cleaver met with a Chinese ambassador to Algeria in order to express their mutual animosity towards the American government. When Algeria held its first Pan-African Cultural Festival, they invited many important figures from the United States. Among these important figures were Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver. The Cultural Festival fall allowed the Black Panthers to network with representatives of various anti-imperialistic movements. This was a significant time which led to the formation of the international section of the party. It was at this festival that Cleaver met with the ambassador of North Korea, who later invited him to an international conference of revolutionary journalists in Pyongyang. Eldridge also met with Yasser Arafat and gave a speech supporting the Palestinians in their goal of achieving liberation. This meeting ultimately was a huge deal for Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver went on to expatriate to Algeria. Algeria gave Cleaver a embassy. It was an actual Black Panther embassy. So um, it's not an American embassy. It's a Black Panther Party embassy. Um, and this ties back to if you listened to um, Counterculture Part two or three um timothy leary timothy leary was this nixon hated him he had a hard on for him for whatever reason he decided he was the reason that there was a counterculture movement he decided it was all his fault it's not um it's just this this professor who looked into something wrote books about taking drugs and, and lsd and enlightenment and people read it and decided you know I want to try this but that being said when he finally and he finally got busted for something so stupid yes he did put a network of LSD together he did find chemists and put them in connection with other people so that LSD was out there it was the brotherhood of eternal love who made LSD affordable and they did read Leary's teachings. However, once the Brotherhood met Leary and realized what kind of an asshole he was, 
they soured on him to the point that they packed their shit up and moved out of where they were um, running their base because Leary brought heat. He had a big ass mouth. He could do nothing but draw attention to himself and he was blowing up their spot. They were international drug smugglers. They didn't need constant attention and press and media in their faces. And so nobody believed they were drug smugglers till Leary showed up. Now, not only did people believe they were drug smugglers, they thought they were Leary smugglers, that Leary was running their show. And that was even worse. So then when he finally gets caught, it's because all these people are watching him. It's one joint because Nixon has a hard on for him. He gets 20 years for this one joint. And because he's an entitled poser, he's like, I can't do, I can't do time. I'm not doing time. So who's breaking me out? And the Brotherhood of Eternal Love pays the Weather Underground to break him out. The Weather Underground, being clueless, entitled kids, they send him to Algeria to Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers. What does he do? Because he is a poser and because he doesn't really get what is going on or he's clueless to his situation, he blows up his spot. He constantly tells everybody he runs into what is going on. I'm Timothy Leary. I'm on the run constantly. Also, he calls all these people and he has them come to Algeria and bring drugs, which if you were caught smuggling drugs at the time in Algeria is a death sentence. So you have Eldridge Cleaver who worked really hard to get this situation set up in Algeria. And now this dumbass Timothy Leary is blowing up your spot. He's bringing drugs. He's doing all this stuff. Could not only get your embassy, your piece of heaven that you fought really hard to get set up. Not only could he blow that up, but he could get you killed because he's smuggling drugs in. What are you supposed to do with this fool? Like, so he locked him down because really that's, the only choice he had so now Leary is calling people and telling them that he is holding him hostage and he wants a ransom no he's trying not to get murdered he's trying not you know to have Larry completely blow up his spot he did try and smuggle him into another country but Leary blew that spot up when he got on the plane and proceeded to tell the person next to him who he was and everything that was happening and as soon as they got to the next country they got shut down by officials in that country so you know elders did what he could but you know larry just couldn't keep his big ass mouth shut so larry decided he would break out and cleaver's never been so happy because you know you can't help somebody who doesn't really want to be helped so that's how the Black Panthers tie into the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Um, they tie into Timothy Leary and the Weather Underground. In uh, further on, you're going to hear more about um, the demise of the party and some of the offshoots of the party. They start to come together and form separate organizations with some offshoots of the Weather Underground when the Weather Underground starts to fall apart. So we're going to end that here because after this is when the organization starts to fall apart, like I said, and you have offshoots of the Panthers as the organization starts to fall apart. Um, like I said, Elger Cleaver gets out, Eldridge Cleaver gets out. He goes to Algeria. He's not the only one. You have several other Panthers 
who are going to be wanted. They don't want what happens to Bobby Hutton to happen to them. They're afraid at this point because of COINTELPRO. And you start to see people do things like hijack flights and to take them to Cuba. There are multiple Panthers who are still living in Cuba. Um, they made their way there. Um, just flee the country out of fear of what the FBI was going to do to them. Um, leadership changes multiple times. And like I said, as the party fractures and starts to fall apart, um, you see some of these fractured pieces come together with other organizations. And that in the late seventies is when we start to get our very first real after the weather underground, you start to get these these domestic terror groups, these actual terror groups that are doing things other than, you know, where to this point, everything that the Panthers were doing, they were run of the mill extortion, racketeering, basic stuff that a gang would do. Now, once they start to splinter off and get involved with the likes of people who were part of the Weather Underground and these other groups, you start to get real terror groups. They weren't a terror group so much as run-of-the-mill criminal activities, you start to get these real type of activities that could be categorized as terrorist activities that you start to see as they start to let go of the ideology that was about bringing together the black community. Uh, we will look into that part of them, their demise, the disbanding, the end of the party um, officially um, in next episode. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.